0: part two of the variable man by philip k dick this librivox recording is in the public domain part two thomas cole was sharpening a knife with his whetstone when the tornado hit the knife belonged to the lady in the big greenhouse every time cole came by with his fixit cart the lady had something to be sharpened once in a while she gave him a cup of coffee Hot black coffee from an old bent pot. He liked that fine. He enjoyed good coffee. The day was drizzly and overcast. Business had been bad, and automobile had scared his two horses. On bad days less people were outside, and he had to get down from the cart and go to ring doorbells. But the man in the yellow house had given him a dollar for fixing his electric refrigerator. Nobody else had been able to fix it, not even the factory man. The dollar would go a long way. A dollar was a lot. He knew it was a tornado, even before it hit him. Everything was silent. He was bent over his whetstone, the reins between his knees absorbed in his work. He had done a good job on the knife. He was almost finished. He spat on the blade and was holding it up to see and then the tornado came. All at once it was there, completely around him, nothing but grayness. He and the cart and horses seemed to be in a calm spot in the center of the tornado. They were moving in a great silence, gray mist everywhere, and while he was wondering what to do and how to get the lady's knife back to her, all at once there was a bump and the tornado tipped him over, sprawled out on the ground. The horses screamed in fear, struggling to pick themselves up. Cole got quickly to his feet. Where was he? The grayness was gone. White walls stuck up on all sides. A deep light gleamed down, not daylight, but something like it. The team was pulling the cart on its side, dragging it along, tools and equipment falling out. Cole righted the cart, leaping up into the seat, and for the first time saw the people—men with astonished white faces in some sort of uniforms, shouts, noise and confusion, and a feeling of danger. Cole headed the team toward the door. Hoofs thundered steel against steel as they pounded through the doorway, scattering the astonished men in all directions. He was out in a wide hall, a building like a hospital. The hall divided. More men were coming, spilling from all sides, shouting and milling in excitement like white ants. Something cut past him, a beam of dark violet. It seared off a corner of the court, leaving the wood smoking. Cole felt fear. He kicked at the terrified horses. They reached a big door, crashing wildly against it. The door gave, and they were outside, bright sunlight blinking down on them. For a sickening second the cart tilted, almost turning over. Then the horses gained speed, racing across an open field toward a distant line of green, Cole holding tightly to the reins. Behind him the little white-faced men had come out and were standing in a group, gesturing frantically. He could hear their faint, shrill shouts, but he had got away. He was safe. He slowed the horses down and began to breathe again. The woods were artificial, some kind of park, but the park was wild and overgrown, a dense jungle of twisted plants, everything growing in confusion. The park was empty, no one was there. By the possession of the sun he could tell it was either early morning or late afternoon. The smell of the flowers and grass, the dampness of the leaves indicated morning. It had been late afternoon when the tornado had picked him up, and the sky had been overcast and cloudy. Cole considered. Clearly he had been carried a long way. The hospital, the men with white faces, the odd lighting, the accented words he had caught. Everything indicated he was no longer in Nebraska, maybe not even in the United States. Some of his tools had fallen out and gotten lost along the way. Cole collected everything that remained, sorting them, running his fingers over each tool with affection. Some of the little chisels and wood gouges were gone. The bit box had opened and most of the smaller bits had been lost. He gathered up those that remained and replaced them tenderly in the box. He took a keyhole saw down and, with an oil rag, wiped it carefully and replaced it. Above the cart the sun rose slowly in the sky. Cole peered up, his horny hand over his eyes. A big man, stoop-shouldered, his chin gray and stubbled, his clothes wrinkled and dirty, But his eyes were clear, a pale blue, and his hands were finely made. He could not stay in the park. They had seen him ride that way. They would be looking for him. Far above, something shot rapidly across the sky. A tiny black dot moving with incredible haste. A second dot followed. The two dots were gone almost before he saw them. They were utterly silent. Cole frowned, perturbed. The dots made him uneasy. He would have to keep moving and looking for food. His stomach was already beginning to rumble and groan. Work. There was plenty he could do. Gardening, sharpening, grinding, repair work on machines and clocks, fixing all kinds of household things, even painting and odd jobs in carpentry and chores. He could do anything, anything people wanted done. For a meal and pocket money. Thomas Cole urged the team into life moving forward. He sat hunched over in the seat, watching intently as the Fix-It cart rolled slowly across the tangled grass through the jungle of trees and flowers. Reinhardt hurried, racing his cruiser at top speed, followed by a second ship, a military escort. The ground sped by below him, a blur of gray and green. Slag and weeds below him, and then the sudden tangle that had been Central Park. Histo-research came into sight. Reinhardt swooped down, bringing his cruiser to rest at the small supply field behind the main buildings. Harper, the chief official of the department, came quickly over as soon as Reinhardt's ship landed. "'Frankly we don't understand why you consider this matter important,' Harper said uneasily. Reinhardt shot him a cold glance. I'll be the judge of what's important. Are you the one who gave the order to bring the Bubble back manually? Friedman gave the actual order, in line with your directive to have all facilities ready for— Reinhardt headed toward the entrance of the research building. Where is Friedman? Inside. I want to see him. Let's go. Friedman met them inside. He greeted Reinhardt calmly, showing no emotion. "'Sorry to cause you trouble, Commissioner. We were trying to get the station in order for the war. We wanted the bubble back as quickly as possible.' He eyed Reinhardt curiously. "'No doubt the man and his cart will soon be picked up by your police.' "'I want to know everything that happened in exact detail.' Friedman shifted uncomfortably there's not much to tell i gave the order to have the automatic setting cancelled and the bubble brought back manually at the moment the signal reached it the bubble was passing through the spring of nineteen thirteen as it broke loose it tore off a piece of ground on which this person and his cart were located the person naturally was brought up to the present inside the bubble didn't any of your instruments tell you the bubble was loaded We were too excited to take any readings. Half an hour after the manual control was thrown the bubble materialized in the observation room. It was de-energized before anyone noticed what was inside. We tried to stop him, but he drove the cart out into the hall, bowling us out of the way. The horses were in a panic. What kind of a cart was it? There was some kind of sign on it, painted in black letters on both sides. No one saw what it was. Go ahead. What happened then? Someone fired a Slim Ray after him, but it missed. The horses carried him out of the building and onto the grounds. By the time we reached the exit the cart was halfway to the park. Reinhardt reflected. If he's still in the park we should have him shortly, but we must be careful. He was already starting back toward the ship, leaving Friedman behind. Harper fell in beside him. Reinhardt halted by his ship. He beckoned some government guards over. "'Put the executive staff on this department under arrest. I'll have them tried on a treason count later on.' He smiled ironically as Harper's face blanched sickly pale. "'There's a war going on. You'll be lucky if you get off alive.' Reinhardt entered his ship and left the surface, rising rapidly into the sky. A second ship followed after him, a military escort. Reinhardt flew high above the sea of grey slag, the unrecovered waste area. He passed over a sudden square of green set in the ocean of grey. Reinhardt gazed back at it until it was gone. Central Park He could see the police ships racing through the sky, ships and transports loaded with troops, heading toward the square of green. On the ground some heavy guns and surface cars rumbled along, lines of black approaching the park from all sides. They would have the man soon, but meanwhile the SRB machines were blank, and on the SRB machines readings the whole war depended. About noon the cart reached the edge of the park. Cole rested for a moment, allowing the horses time to crop at the thick grass. The silent expanse of slag amazed him. What had happened? Nothing stirred. No buildings. No sign of life. Grass and weeds poked up occasionally through it, breaking the flat surface here and there, but even so the sight gave him an uneasy chill. Cole drove the cart slowly out onto the slag, studying the sky above him. There was nothing to hide him now that he was out of the park. The slag was bare and uniform like the ocean, if he were spotted. A horde of tiny black dots raced across the sky, coming rapidly closer. Presently they veered to the right and disappeared. More planes, wingless metal planes. He watched them go, driving slowly on. Half an hour later something appeared ahead. Cole slowed the cart down, peering to see. The slag came to an end. He had reached its limits. Ground appeared, dark soil and grass. Weeds grew everywhere. Ahead of him, beyond the end of the slag, was a line of buildings, houses of some sort, or sheds. Houses probably, but not like any he had ever seen. The houses were uniform, all exactly the same size, like little green shells, rows of them, several hundred. There was a little lawn in front of each—lawn, a path, a front porch—bushes in a meager row around each house, but the houses were all alike and very small—little green shells in precise even rows. He urged the cart cautiously forward toward the houses. No one seemed to be around. He entered a street between two rows of houses, the hoofs of his two horses sounding loudly in the silence. He was in some kind of town, but there were no dogs or children. Everything was neat and silent, like a model, an exhibit. It made him uncomfortable. A young man walking along the pavement gaped at him in wonder. An oddly-dressed youth in a toga-like cloak that hung down to his knees, a single piece of fabric, and sandals, or what looked like sandals. Both the cloak and the sandals were of some strange half-luminous material. It glowed faintly in the sunlight, metallic rather than cloth. A woman was watering flowers at the edge of a lawn. She straightened up as his team of horses came near. Her eyes widened in astonishment, and then fear. Her mouth fell open in a soundless "Oh," and her sprinkling can slipped from her fingers and rolled silently onto the lawn cole blushed and turned his head quickly away the woman was scarcely dressed he flicked the reins and urged the horses to hurry behind him the woman stood still he stole a brief hasty look back and then shouted hoarsely to his team ears scarlet he had seen right she wore only a pair of translucent shorts nothing else a mere fragment of the same half-luminous material that glowed and sparkled. The rest of her small body was utterly naked. He slowed the team down. She had been pretty—brown hair and eyes, deep red lips, quite a good figure, slender waist, downy legs, bare and supple, full breasts. He clamped the thought furiously off. He had to get to work. business. Cole halted the fix-it cart and leaped down onto the pavement. He selected a house at random and approached it cautiously. The house was attractive. It had a certain simple beauty, but it looked frail and exactly like the others. He stepped up to the porch. There was no bell. He searched for it, running his hand uneasily over the surface of the door. All at once there was a click, a sharp snap on a level with his eyes. Cole glanced up, startled. A lens was vanishing as the door section slid over it. He had been photographed. While he was wondering what it meant the door swung suddenly open. A man filled up the entrance, a big man in a tan uniform, blocking the way ominously. "'What do you want?' the man demanded. "'I'm looking for work,' Cole murmured. "'Any kind of work. I can do anything, fix any kind of thing. I repair broken objects, things that need mending. His voice trailed off uncertainly. Anything at all? Apply to the Placement Department of the Federal Activities Control Board, the man said crisply. You know all occupational therapy is handled through them. He eyed Cole curiously. Why have you got on those ancient clothes? Ancient? Why, I... The man gazed past him at the fixed it cart and the two dozing horses. "'What's that? What are those two animals?' "'Horses?' The man rubbed his jaw, studying Cole intently. "'That's strange,' he said. "'Strange?' Cole murmured uneasily. "'Why?' There haven't been any horses for over a century. All the horses were wiped out during the Fifth Atomic War. That's why it's strange.' Cole tensed, suddenly alert. There was something in the man's eyes, a hardness, a piercing look. Cole moved back off the porch, onto the path. He had to be careful. Something was wrong. "'I'll be going,' he murmured. "'There haven't been any horses for over a hundred years,' the man came toward Cole. "'Who are you? Why are you dressed up like that?' where did you get that vehicle and pair of horses i'll be going cole repeated moving away the man whipped something from his belt a thin metal tube he stuck it toward cole it was a rolled up paper a thin sheet of metal in the form of a tube words some kind of a script he could not make out any of them the man's picture rows of numbers figures i'm director winslow the man said federal stockpile conservation you better talk fast or there'll be a security car here in five minutes cole moved fast he raced head down back along the path to the cart toward the street something hit him a wall of force throwing him down on his face he sprawled in a heap numb and dazed His body ached, vibrating wildly out of control. Waves of shock rolled over him, gradually diminishing. He got shakily to his feet. His head spun. He was weak, shattered, trembling violently. The man was coming down the walk after him. Cole pulled himself onto the cart, gasping and retching. The horses jumped into life. Cole rolled over against the seat, sick with the motion of the swaying cart. He caught hold of the reins and managed to drag himself to a sitting position. The cart gained speed, turning a corner. Houses flew past, Cole urged the team weakly, drawing great shuddering breaths. Houses and streets, a blur of motion, as the cart flew faster and faster along. Then he was leaving the town leaving the neat little houses behind. He was on some kind of highway. Big buildings, factories on both sides of the highway, figures, men watching in astonishment. After a while the factories fell behind. Cole slowed the team down. What had the man meant? Fifth Atomic War? Horses destroyed? It didn't make sense? And they had things he knew nothing about. Force fields. Planes without wings. Soundless. Cole reached around in his pockets. He found the identification tube the man had handed him. In the excitement, he had carried it off. He unrolled the tube slowly and began to study it. The writing was strange to him. For a long time, he studied the tube. Then, gradually, he became aware of something in the top right hand corner. A date. October 6, 2128 Cole's vision blurred. Everything spun and wavered around him. October 2128? Could it be? But he held the paper in his hand. Thin metal paper, like foil. And it had to be. It says so right in the corner, printed on the paper itself. Cole rolled the tube up slowly, numbed with shock. Two hundred years! It didn't seem possible, but things were beginning to make sense. He was in the future, two hundred years in the future! While he was mulling this over, the swift black security ship appeared overhead, diving rapidly toward the horse-drawn cart as it moved slowly along the road. Reinhardt's vidscreen buzzed. He snapped it quickly on. Yes? Report from security. Put it through. Reinhardt waited tensely as the lines locked in place. The screen relit. This is Dixon, Western Regional Command. The officer cleared his throat, shuffling his message plates. "Uh, The man from the past has been reported moving away from the New York area. Which side of your net? Outside. He evaded the net around Central Park by entering one of the small towns at the rim of the slag area. Evaded? We assumed he would avoid the towns. Uh, Naturally, the net failed to encompass any of the towns. Reinhardt's jaw stiffened. Go on. He entered the town of Petersville a few minutes before the net closed around the park. We burned the park level, but naturally found nothing. He was already gone. An hour later we received a report from a resident in Petersville, an official of the Stockpile Conservation Department. The man from the past had come to his door looking for work. Winslow, the official, engaged him in conversation, trying to hold on to him, but he escaped, driving his cart off. Winslow called security right away, but by then it was too late. "'Report to me as soon as anything more comes in. We must have him, and damn soon!' Reinhardt snapped the screen off. It died quickly. He sat back in his chair, waiting. Cole saw the shadow of the security ship. He reacted at once. A second after the shadow passed over him, Cole was out of the cart, running and falling. He rolled, twisting and turning, pulling his body as far away from the cart as possible. There was a blinding roar and flash of white light. A hot wind rolled over Cole, picking him up and tossing him like a leaf. He shut his eyes, letting his body relax. He bounced, falling and striking the ground. Gravel and stones tore into his face, his knees, the palms of his hands. Cole cried out, shrieking in pain. His body was on fire. He was being consumed, incinerated by the blinding white orb of fire. The orb expanded, growing in size, swelling like some monstrous sun, twisted and bloated. The end had come. There was no hope. He gritted his teeth. The greedy orb faded, dying down. It sputtered and winked out, blackening into ash. The air reeked a bitter acrid smell. His clothes were burning and smoking. The ground under him was hot, baked dry, seared by the blast. But he was alive, at least for a while. Cole opened his eyes slowly. The cart was gone. A great hole gaped where it had been. A shattered sore in the center of the highway. An ugly cloud hung above the hole, black and ominous. Far above, the wingless plane circled, watching for any signs of life. Cole lay, breathing shallowly, slowly. Time passed. The sun moved across the sky with agonizing slowness. It was perhaps four in the afternoon, Cole calculated mentally. In three hours it would be dark. If he could stay alive until then. Had the plane seen him leap from the cart? He lay without moving. The late afternoon sun beat down on him. He felt sick, nauseated, and feverish. His mouth was dry. Some ants ran over his outstretched hand. Gradually the immense black cloud was beginning to drift away, dispersing into a formless blob. The cart was gone. The thought lashed against him, pounding at his brain, mixing with his labored pulse-beat. Gone, destroyed, nothing but ashes and debris remained. The realization dazed him. Finally the plane finished its circling, winged its way toward the horizon. At last it vanished. The sky was clear. Cole got unsteadily to his feet. He wiped his face shakily. His body ached and trembled. He spat a couple of times, trying to clear his mouth. The plane would probably send in a report. People would be coming to look for him. Where could he go? To his right a line of hills rose up, a distant green mass. Maybe he could reach them. He began to walk slowly. He had to be very careful. They were looking for him, and they had weapons, incredible weapons. He would be lucky to still be alive when the sun set. His team and Fix-It Cart were gone, and all his tools. Cole reached into his pockets, searching through them, hopefully. He brought out some small screwdrivers, a little pair of cutting pliers, some wire, some solder, the whetstone, and finally the lady's knife. Only a few small tools remained. He had lost everything else. But without the cart he was safer, harder to spot. They would have more trouble finding him on foot. Cole hurried along, crossing the level fields toward the distant range of hills. The call came through to Reinhardt almost at once. Dixon's features formed on the vidscreen. screen. I have a further report, Commissioner. Dixon scanned the plate. Good news. The man from the past was sighted moving away from Petersville along Highway 13, at about ten miles an hour, on his heart-drawn cart. Our ship bombed him immediately. Did—did you get him? The pilot reports no sign of life after the blast. Reinhardt's pulse almost stopped. He sank back in his chair. Then he's dead. Actually we don't know for certain until we examine the debris. A surface car is speeding toward the spot. We should have the complete report in a short time. We'll notify you as soon as the information comes in." Reinhardt reached out and cut the screen. It faded into darkness. Had they got the man from the past, or had he escaped again? Weren't they ever going to get him? Couldn't he be captured? And meanwhile the SRB machines were silent, showing nothing at all. Reinhardt sat, brooding, waiting impatiently for the report of the surface car to come in. It was evening. "'Come on!' Stephen shouted, running frantically after his brother. Come on back. "'Catch me!' Earl ran and ran down the side of the hill, over behind a military storage depot, along a neotex fence, jumping finally down into Mrs. Norris's backyard. Stephen hurried after his brother sobbing for breath, shouting and gasping as he ran. "'Come back! You come back with that!' "'What's he got?' Sally Tate demanded, stepping out suddenly to block Stephen's way. Stephen halted, his chest rising and falling. "'He's got my inner system, vidsender." His small face twisted with rage and misery. "'He'd better give it back.' Earl came circling around from the right. In the warm gloom of evening he was almost invisible. "'Here I am,' he announced. "'What you going to do?' Stephen glared at him hotly. His eyes made out the square box in Earl's hands. "'You give that back, or or I'll tell Dad.' Earl laughed. "'Make me.' "'Dad'll make you.' "'You better give it to him,' Sally said. "'Catch me,' Earl started off. Stephen pushed Sally out of the way, lashing wildly at his brother. He collided with him, throwing him sprawling. The box fell from Earl's hands. It skidded to the pavement, crashing into the side of a guide-light post. Earl and Stephen picked themselves up slowly. They gazed down at the broken box. "'See?' Stephen shrilled, tears filling his eyes. "'See what you did?' "'You did it. You pushed into me.' "'You did it!' Stephen bent down and picked up the box. He carried it over to the guidelight, setting down on the curb to examine it. Earl came slowly over. If you hadn't pushed me it wouldn't have got broken. Night was descending rapidly. The line of hills rising above the town were already lost in darkness. A few lights had come on here and there. The evening was warm. A surface car slammed its doors someplace off in the distance. In the sky ships droned back and forth, weary commuters coming home from work in the big underground factory units. Thomas Cole came slowly toward the three children grouped around the guide light. He moved with difficulty, his body sore and bent with fatigue. Night had come, but he was not safe yet. He was tired, exhausted, and hungry. He had walked a long way. AND HE HAD TO HAVE SOMETHING TO EAT, SOON. A few feet from the children, Cole stopped. They were all intent and absorbed by the box on Stephen's knees. Suddenly a hush fell over the children. Earl looked up slowly. In the dim light the big stooped figure of Thomas Cole seemed extra menacing. His long arms hung down loosely at his sides. His face was lost in shadow. His body was shapeless, indistinct. A big, unformed statue standing silently a few feet away, unmoving, in the half-darkness. "'Who are you?' Earl demanded, his voice low. "'What do you want?' Sally said. The children edged away nervously. "'Get away!' Cole came toward them. He bent down a little. The beam from the guidelight crossed his features. Lean, prominent nose, beak like, faded blue eyes. Stephen scrambled to his feet, clutching the vidsender box. You get out of here. Wait. Cole smiled crookedly at them. His voice was dry and raspy. What do you have there? He pointed with his long, slender fingers. The box you're holding. The children were silent. Finally Stephen stirred. It's my intersystem vidsender. "'Only it doesn't work,' Sally said. "'Earl broke it.' Stephen glared at his brother bitterly. "'Earl threw it down and broke it.' Cole smiled a little. He sank down wearily on the edge of the curb, sighing with relief. He had been walking too long. His body ached with fatigue. He was hungry and tired. For a long time he sat wiping perspiration from his neck and face, too exhausted to speak. "'Who are you?' Sally demanded at last. "'Why do you have on those funny clothes? Where did you come from?' "'Where?' Cole looked around at the children. "'From a long way off. A long way.' He shook his head slowly from side to side, trying to clear it. "'What's your therapy?' Earl asked. "'My therapy? What do you do? Where do you work?' Cole took a deep breath and let it out again, slowly. "'I fix things, all kinds of things, any kind.' Earl sneered. "'Nobody fixes things. When they break you throw them away.' Cole didn't hear him. Sudden need had roused him, getting him suddenly to his feet. "'You know any work I can find?' he demanded. "'Things I could do. I can fix anything.' Clocks, typewriters, refrigerators, pots and pans. uh, Leaks in the roof. I can fix anything there is." Stephen held out his inter-system vid "'Fix this!' There was silence. Slowly Cole's eyes focused on the box. "'That?' "'My sender. Earl broke it.' Cole took the box slowly. He turned it over, holding it up to the light. He frowned, concentrating on it. His long, slender fingers moved carefully over the surface, exploring it. "'He'll steal it,' Earl said suddenly. "'No,' Cole shook his head vaguely. "'I'm reliable.' His sensitive fingers found the studs that held the box together. He depressed the studs, pushing them expertly in. The box opened, revealing its complex interior. "'He got it open,' Sally whispered. "'Give it back.' Stephen demanded, a little frightened. He held out his hand. I want it back. The three children watched Cole apprehensively. Cole fumbled in his pocket. Slowly he brought out his tiny screwdrivers and pliers. He laid them in a row beside him. He made no move to return the box. I want it back, Stephen said feebly. Cole looked up. His faded blue eyes took in the sight of the three children standing before him in the gloom. "'I'll fix it for you. You said you wanted it fixed?' "'I want it back.' Stephen stood on one foot, then the other, torn by doubt and indecision. "'Can you really fix it? Can you make it work again?' "'Yes.' "'All right. Fix it for me, then.' A sly smile flickered across Cole's tired face. Now wait a minute. If I fix this, will you bring me something to eat? I'm not fixing it for nothing. Something to eat? Food. I need hot food. Maybe some coffee. Stephen nodded. Yes, I'll get it for you. Cole relaxed. Fine, that's fine. He turned his attention back to the box resting between his knees. Then I'll fix it for you. I'll fix it for you, good. Good. His fingers flew, working and twisting, tracing down wires and relays, exploring and examining, finding out about the inter-system vid-screen, discovering how it worked. Stephen slipped into the house through the emergency door. He made his way to the kitchen with great care, walking on tiptoe. He punched the kitchen controls at random, his heart beating excitedly. The stove began to whirr, purring into life. Meter readings came on, crossing toward the completion marks. Presently the stove opened, sliding out a tray of steaming dishes. The mechanism clicked off, dying into silence. Stephen grabbed up the contents of the tray, filling his arms. He carried everything down the hall, out the emergency door, and into the yard. The yard was dark. Stephen felt his way carefully along. He managed to reach the guide light without dropping anything at all. Thomas Cole got slowly to his feet as Stephen came into view. "'Here,' Stephen said. He dumped the food onto the curb, gasping for breath. "'Here's the food. Is it finished?' Cole held out the intersystem system sender "'It's finished. It was pretty badly smashed.' Earl and Sally gazed up wide-eyed. "'Does it work?' Sally asked. "'Of course not,' Earl stated. "'How could it work? He couldn't—' Turn it on, Sally nudged Stephen eagerly. Uh, See if it works. Stephen was holding the box under the light, examining the switches. He clicked the main switch on. The indicator light gleamed. It lights up, Stephen said. Say something into it. Stephen spoke into the box. Uh, Hello, Uh, hello, this is Operator 6Z75 calling. Can you hear me? This is Operator 6Z75. Can you hear me? In the darkness, away from the beam of the guidelight, light Thomas Cole sat crouched over the food. He ate gratefully, silently. It was good food, well cooked and seasoned. He drank a container of orange juice, and then a sweet drink he didn't recognize. Most of the food was strange to him, but he didn't care. He had walked a long way, and he was plenty hungry. And he still had a long way to go before morning. He had to be deep in the hills before the sun came up. Instinct told him that he would be safe among the trees and tangled growth, at least as safe as he could hope for. He ate rapidly intent on the food. He did not look up until he was finished. Then he got slowly to his feet, wiping his mouth with the back of his hand. The three children were standing around in a circle, operating the intersystem vidcenter. vid-center. He watched them for a few minutes. None of them looked up from the small box. They were intent, absorbed in what they were doing. "'Well,' Cole said at last, "'does it work all right?' After a moment Stephen looked up at him. There was a strange expression on his face. He nodded slowly. "'Yes, yes, it works. It works fine,' Cole grunted. "'All right.' He turned and moved away from the light. "'That's fine.' The children watched silently until the figure of Thomas Cole had completely disappeared. Slowly they turned and looked at each other, then down at the box in Stephen's hands. They gazed at the box in growing awe, awe mixed with dawning fear. Stephen turned and edged toward his house. "'I've got to show it to my dad,' he murmured dazed. "'He's got to know. Somebody's got to know.' End of part two.